0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. And I also have some stuff in a blog I started writing in about two and a half years ago. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is August 27th, 2021. And I wanted to pick up where we left off in the last episode. And I said I was going to use the NC State case that's being adjudicated right now by the independent resolution panel under the NCAA enforcement and infractions process as a template for just how rotten this system is. And I don't think I mentioned this in the last episode, but that NC State case went to the independent resolution hearing panel in August, really just about 10 days ago, I think. And so the panel's going to Evaluate the evidence and the arguments and deliberate and then reach a decision. And that decision will be published. That's a requirement under this independent resolution process, as it is under the old process, the Committee on Infractions process. But I don't know when it's going to come out. And it's really hard to predict. But given the NCAA Division I Board of Directors newly found concern for speed and efficiency in these infractions and enforcement cases. There'll be some pressure, I think, on that panel to come out with a decision as soon as they can. So it's going to be months, though, and it could go into the spring and could, could be longer. Who knows? And I think that decision is going to be really important in gaining some insight into how this process is moving behind the scenes. And the extent to which the NCAA may have changed its tune after the Austin decision and after the NCAA failed in Congress to get its Iron Throne immunities and protections and after the NCAA completely bungled the name, image, and likeness issue and just had to wave the white flag at the last minute because they refused to make good on their promise to actually legislate to provide athletes some meaningful nil opportunities. So all that will play out. But before I get into the specifics of the NCAA's case against NC State, I think it's really important to put that regulatory process in context. And to do that, we have to zoom out and look at where this all started, and that was with the criminal cases that came out of the Southern District of New York in 2017 and really was ground zero for this entire ball of mess that's been created as a consequence of the prosecution of those cases. And one of the most complicating and confusing aspects of this entire story, and I would say one of the fundamental hypocrisies in this story is that on the criminal side, when these criminal cases were launched and they had been investigated going back probably at least maybe into 2015, we don't really know. And the origin of this FBI investigation is really important and nobody's talking about it. Nobody's asking about it, but that's something that needs to be explored, I I think. But as I'm going to explain in more detail here in this episode, We have these criminal cases coming out of New York alleging that these transactions and payments to steer athletes to certain schools amounted to a fraud perpetrated on the universities. So in this NC State case, you had NC State recruiting a really high-value target, Dennis Smith Jr. He was one of the best players in high school coming out, and then he played at state for a year. He was a one-and-done quality player. And the allegations in that case that were the product of this investigation were that the defendants in that case violated federal criminal law because Adidas, the shoe company with which NC State had a contract, funneled money through an NC State assistant coach to Dennis Smith's father. And that payment was really designed to try to keep Smith in the game with NC State. They were concerned, State was concerned that his uh, prior commitment to attend NC State was wavering. And this payment was designed to kind of lock him in. And uh, again, I'll get into more of that in, in just a little bit. But in that context, in the criminal context, NC State was deemed the victim. And the judge in that case and the prosecution in that case concocted the victim university theory. That's capital V, capital U. And as I'll explain, that theory is very difficult to swallow. But... In order to prosecute a crime, there has to be a victim. And under this really strange theory that the prosecution creatively concocted and that the trial judge adopted, the victims were the universities. And that theory of the relationship among the parties and the corruption that has existed for decades in college basketball and in the recruiting process, stands in direct and diametric opposition to how the interests of the parties are characterized in the regulatory process. When the NCAA gets involved, all of a sudden, NC State's not a victim. They are the perpetrator. And those two realities simply can't coexist. And all of the Issues in both the criminal case and the regulatory case swirl around the talent acquisition market. And that component of the big-time college sports business model is where the rubber meets the road. And that's all that the beneficiaries of big-time college sports care about. That's it. And the NCAA Division I manual reflects that because the only area that it really regulates in through active enforceable legislation is in preserving amateurism and the regulation of the talent acquisition market through recruiting, and those two are inextricably linked. So what I wanna do in this episode, really to lay the foundation for an intelligent discussion about the NCAA case that's pending right now, is to talk about the context of the market in which this alleged corruption Occurred. And that requires a peek behind the veil of the pristine image that universities present to the public about their commitment to integrity and amateurism and rules compliance and all that stuff and the way the world really works. And that tension is obvious in these criminal cases. And it was not properly resolved because the defendants in that case were prohibited from breathing a word about the NCAA's regulatory structure, about the amateurism fraud, about how the world really works and that was in my judgment really prejudicial to the defendants all of whom were convicted on wire fraud charges and and just as a general proposition here these issues have been thoroughly vetted on the criminal side in the litigation process so you had these criminal trials, and I'm focusing just on the, the Gatto case and NC State's involvement, but there were other criminal cases that really went to the same issues and had the same common core of facts in this corrupt recruiting talent acquisition process. And I guess I should say as a threshold matter and as a disclaimer, that the amount of information that I have waded through to try to explain this in a way that makes sense is so voluminous that I fear that I may not be doing it justice. In fact, it's impossible to do it justice. This entire basketball, quote unquote, scandal and the criminal cases and then the NCAA regulatory aftermath could be an entirely separate podcast or a separate book. And that's on my list of things to consider because it really goes to the heart of NCAA a hypocrisy, but the criminal cases all resulted in convictions. And then in this Scotto case, the defendants appealed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. New York sits in the Second Circuit. And that appeal was decided in January of 2021, and the Second Circuit issued a very interesting opinion. Panels of three judges hear these appeals in the first instance. And this three-judge panel largely agreed on most of the important issues and upheld the convictions. But one of the three judges dissented and address some evidentiary issues that he would have handled differently, and in his discussion of those issues, he really hits on some important themes that I think subtly question the trial judge's victim university theory that I'm going to talk about here in a minute, but also the appropriateness of having this case in the criminal justice system in the first place. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in this episode, but again, just the 30,000 foot level at the philosophical level, because so many of the legal issues in this case, relate to some of the most complicated, mind-numbing principles of evidence and the admissibility of evidence, and then jury charges. And they are based on fine distinctions. And it's just so complicated, it would almost be impossible to, to summarize it in an accurate way. But some of the themes that developed in that briefing and in that decision are really important. And, and I haven't read a lot about this, but after losing their appeal in the second Circuit, the defendants decided to appeal to the United States Supreme Court, and they just filed their brief at the beginning of August, so just a few weeks ago. But I have been into the electronic vault in the district court in the Gatto case, in the Second Circuit, and today, this morning, I just read the petition for certiorari in the United States Supreme Court. And the way that the defendants frame their arguments in the U.S. Supreme Court really shines a bright light on the danger of transforming violations of NCAA rules and regulations into violations of federal criminal law. And that's essentially what's happening here. So I'm gonna, I'm relying on a vast body of resources and I have read significant portions of the information and the motions and the rulings that came out of the trial court. And I've talked a little bit about some of these in other episodes but I've read the court's opinions that go to the theory of the case and the merits of some of the decisions, including the exclusion of an expert's report that really went to the heart of the hypocrisy in the NCAA talent acquisition market. And that report was written by Dan Rasher, who was the expert in the Austin antitrust cases. And I think it would be fair to say that he's the leading expert on the business of big time college sports. But his report was excluded by Judge Kaplan, by the trial judge. And when we want to talk about that report and the basis for its exclusion, you, you just scratch your head and say, what's going on here? I mean, this whole process from the beginning of the FBI investigation in 2015 through and into this appeal to the United States Supreme Court just raised so many red flags. I mean, the red flags have red flags. This whole process doesn't smell right. It just doesn't smell right. And this case is just screaming for an explanation as to why it was ever brought in the first place. You hear some of that in the opinion of this dissenting second circuit judge. It's really interesting. He's very savvy in the way that he talks about it, but I'm gonna read some of that to you and you can just decide for yourself. But I think he was thinking, what the hell? is going on here. And why was this case ever brought? What led to the investigation? Why was this case prosecuted? And federal judges really don't have any choice about what cases the prosecution decides to move forward. Although Judge Kaplan, he could have taken an entirely different approach to this and just said, no, this case uh, doesn't pass the blush test. You don't meet the requirements under the wire fraud statute and I'm kicking it out. But he didn't do that. In fact, he was really NCAA right down the line. But when the Second Circuit gets this and you look at the concerns and the questions that this dissenting judge raised, you wonder, you really wonder what's going on here. So that big red flag sort of waving in the background for all of this discussion. But in my portrayal of the facts, I'm relying in large part on how the advocates framed the facts and then also how the district court characterized the facts, and then how the Second Circuit characterized the facts. Then I'm also going to look at the Commission on College Basketball, particularly when we're talking about this transition from the criminal phase over into the regulatory phase, and some of the comments in the Commission on College Basketball, which was cited at some point, and in limited contexts, by almost everyone who weighed in on this case in the criminal process. But in that Commission on College Basketball report, there are statements that just completely undercut the uh, prosecution's theory of the case, particularly as they relate to institutional control and whether these universities, under any rational conceptualization of the true relationship between the universities and the marketplace, can be characterized as victims. I wrote a detailed post on that on the two-year anniversary of the announcement of the charges. And in 2017, September of 2017, the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York held a big national press conference, and there was a big splash, and he had charts, and you know they were going to go after the bad actors, the bad guys. And this is a really just a rehash of the whole bad actor narrative that dates back really to the 1980s and all the athlete-agent brouhaha that has been resurrected time and time again to serve NCAA interests. And I'm not sure how deep I'm going to get into an analysis of the legal issues in the Supreme Court case that was filed just a couple of weeks ago by the defendants, but they identify a case out of the Seventh Circuit that was adjudicated after this athlete-agent scandal in the the late 80s and involved a guy named Norby Walters, who was one of the primary agents that was viewed as responsible for making a lot of athletes ineligible. The prosecution used the same kind of theory here that the victims were the universities. And the Seventh Circuit in that case came out in a completely different place than the trial court in the Second Circuit in Gatto and basically said that the victim university theory wasn't sufficient. It didn't meet the elements of the wire fraud statute. And so the defendants are using that case to argue that there's a circuit split, which is one reason why the United States Supreme Court might take a case. So we'll see what happens there. But some of the comments in the uh, report of, from the Commission on College Basketball really undercut the prosecution's theory of the case. So I'm going to start with how the defendants in this case articulated their statement of facts in their briefing in the Second Circuit, because it hits on all the major themes. I'm going to elaborate on some of these, just more for fully develop the context. But they talk about big-time college sports and how lucrative they are and how important basketball is to the business model. And we all know that and the NCAA business model is built in large part on revenue from high-level Division One men's basketball. And in fact, all of the NCAA's money comes from. The March Madness Tournament. They don't get a penny of football money. This is all about basketball. And they talk about the battle for recruiting. They lay out the NCAA amateurism-based restrictions. And then they talk about the fierce battle for recruiting these truly high-value talent targets, and the important role of shoe and apparel companies in the talent acquisition market. And this whole ball of mess relating to actually three universities, Kansas, Louisville, and NC State, ran through a couple of Adidas-affiliated shadow actors who operate in the talent acquisition market to try to acquire talent and then steer it to universities who have contracts with Adidas. So I wanna first start by talking a little bit about the shoe company influence. And again, this is a huge topic And it could be the subject of a separate podcast, but there's one book in particular that I really like, and I read it when it first came out in 2000. And it's uh, written by a guy named Dan Wetzel, who is a sports writer and and journalist. And the the title of the book is Soul Influence, Basketball, Corporate Greed, and the Corruption of America's Youth. And he tells the story of how big-time Shoe and apparel companies like Adidas, Nike, Converse, you name it, uh, all the big actors, they have insinuated themselves at what's called the grassroots level, which is youth basketball, the youth basketball level and the AAU circuit, where a lot of this talent runs through to identify talent as early as they can, try to get that talent affiliated with a shoe company product. So, in this case, Adidas has people in the AAU field, in the grassroots basketball field, who are there for the primary purpose of identifying talent and then steering that talent through this, up through the system into hopefully professional basketball. At every step along the way, if that talent runs through an Adidas-sponsored entity, then it's win, 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 win for Adidas. And this Wetzel book really shines a light on that. It's really a a good read. And even though it's somewhat dated because this market is much more robust and much more sophisticated than it was in 2000, the basic structure of that market, that talent acquisition market, and the seediness at the grassroots basketball level is still true today. But what's important to understand in the context of this basketball scandal and this Gatto case is that all of the universities that were implicated are Adidas schools. And the three schools that were involved in this Gatto case were Louisville, Kansas, and NC State. And all three have contracts with Adidas. And these are big-time, long-term contracts that go into the tens of millions of dollars. In fact, some of these contracts are up to almost $10 million per year per school. NC State's current contract, I think, is around $6 million a year. But these shoe companies have insinuated themselves into the business of big-time college sports at the institutional level. In fact, in the sporting context, people refer to schools by their shoe company affiliation. So... Uh, NC State's an Adidas school and UCLA is an Under Armour school and Duke is a Nike school and that speaks to the power and the influence that the shoe and apparel companies have at the institutional level in the big time college sports marketplace. A lot of people think the, the sponsorship agreements are modest and that the shoe companies are just getting advertising for their product because these athletes are really forced to wear the, the logo, even though they're not allowed to be compensated for that, and they can't be parties to the contract because that would violate principles of amateurism. But these relationships are more than just a brand affiliation. This is meaningful money that's moving. We really don't know where it goes or how it's spent. And universities receiving this money have been very good at hiding the trail of the money. And that's something the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, for example, has been railing about for years that we don't have transparency in where this money goes and how it's really being used. But I think the point here is that these relationships are powerful, they're high stakes, and they drive many aspects of the big time college sports marketplace. So these Adidas actors are acting, they believe, on behalf of the schools in acquiring this talent. That will help the schools win. And that's really an important but little discussed component of the relationship between the shoe and apparel companies and the universities. And just as Kansas and Louisville and NC State are Adidas schools, there are other high-powered schools that are Nike schools or Under Armour schools. Under Armour, Nike, and Adidas are really the three major players in the sports apparel market, at least on the basketball Side and they're in a highly competitive environment for these highly prized recruits. And I just want to note at this point that Gatto, uh, Jim Gatto, who was the kind of the primary defendant in the this particular criminal case, he was a full time employee of Adidas. So he wasn't some shadowy actor in the grassroots basketball environment. He was an Adidas employee that oversaw a lot of the grassroots basketball initiatives. So I wanna talk a little bit about how the defendants characterized these transactions and the people involved. And they say, and this is from the brief in the second circuit. Division one schools frequently enter into paid sponsorship agreements with major shoe companies, namely Nike, Adidas, and Under Armour, in which the shoe companies pay the schools for the right to provide branded apparel and uniforms to the school's athletics teams. As paid sponsors, the shoe companies are considered representatives of the universities they sponsor, and thus a university can be penalized if its corporate sponsor provides any benefit prospective athletic recruits. And in describing the defendants, they say that as part of its marketing efforts, Adidas sponsors three types of basketball teams, college, high school, an amateur pre-college, and that's the AAU or the grassroots level, less the youth level. One of Mr. Gatto's job responsibilities was to support the colleges that Adidas sponsored, including the universities. And that's capital U, they're talking about Louisville, Kansas, and NC State. Adidas provided Mr. Gatto with complete discretion over a flex budget that could be utilized for various unbudgeted basketball marketing expenses. And then under a heading titled, Payments to the Families of Elite High School Basketball Players, the defendants say this. At trial, the jury learned that there was fierce competition among Division I colleges to recruit the most talented basketball players who were known as five-star athletes. The evidence demonstrated that college basketball coaches often expected the shoe companies sponsoring their programs to quote-unquote help recruit players. And then the defendants turned to the individual athletes that were the subject of these payments. And they focus first on Dennis Smith Jr. And he's the only one I'm going to talk about here. As a high school player, Dennis Smith Jr. was widely considered to be among the very best. After playing one season for NC State, Smith was a first-round NBA draft pick for the Dallas Mavericks and is now the starting point guard for the New York Knicks. In other words, Smith was a one-and-done player. On September 10th, 2015, Smith Jr. agreed to play for NC State. And they say he was the highest ranked athlete that NC State had ever recruited in in its 100-year basketball history. I'm not sure that's true, but there's no question. He was a top-prized prospect. They go on to say, the jury learned that, that in the months following Smith Jr.'s commitment to NC State, Coach Early, that's a reference to Orlando Early, who was an NC State assistant coach at the time. But Coach Early began to feel, quote unquote, uneasy about whether Smith Jr. would actually play for NC State. Mr. Gasnola, and that's a reference to Thomas TJ Gasnola, who has these shadowy connections to Adidas. And they describe him as a former Adidas consultant and one of the government's cooperating witnesses. But Gasnola told the jury that. Coach Early reached out to Mr. Gasnola, expressing concern that there were some issues surrounding Dennis Smith Jr. and the people around him. Specifically, quote, certain things had been promised to the Smith family by another university. And there was a strong possibility that Smith Jr. was going to back out of his commitment to NC State in response. Mr. Gasnola offered to bring Coach Early $40,000 from Adidas, which he hoped would quote-unquote calm the situation. Mr. Gasnola explained to the jury that he believed such a payment would keep Smith's family happy and that sending the money was the right thing to do for Coach Early. Then on November 2nd of 2015, Gasnola gave Early an envelope containing $40,000 in cash. Smith Jr. honored his commitment to NC State playing basketball for the 2016-2017 season before withdrawing from school to play in the NBA. So the suggestion and the allegation there was that this $40,000 went from Adidas to this NC State assistant coach who then paid it to Smith's father. Then the defendants go on to explain that Mr. Gasnola ran an Adidas-affiliated AAU team in Massachusetts. So Gasnola was involved at the grassroots level and he is running an AAU team that has a sponsorship with Adidas because Adidas sponsors teams at this grassroots level, then at the high school level, then at the college level, then at the NBA level. And they're hoping to get a kid, bring him in early and then keep them in Adidas throughout his career trajectory and into the high money years in the NBA. But Gasnola submitted a team expense report to Adidas that was inflated to cover the $40,000 he had given to Coach Early. And then Gatto, as the Adidas employee, the full-time Adidas employee who was overseeing Gasnola and all all of these Adidas-sponsored teams. But Gatto signed off on the expense report, and it was paid out of his quote-unquote flex budget. I guess I should note at this point that this Gasnola guy, who really is the bad actor here, he's the one who's making things happen and moving the money. He's in the seediest crevice of this whole corrupt underbelly of grassroots basketball. But he turns state's evidence and he is the prosecution's star witness. So much of the case against the defendants ran through Gasnola. And on the back side of this, while all of the defendants in these cases wound up being sentenced to prison time, Gasnola got off with a year of probation. And I may get into this a little bit more in the next episode when I talk about the NCAA infractions and enforcement process and how NC State responded to it. But in one of its substantive response documents, the the folks who put together this NC State response attached a number of exhibits. And one of the exhibits that they attached was a 2006 article from the Boston Globe, and it's titled Sneaker War. And it's in the nature of this Wetzel book from 2000 and soul influence although interestingly i don't think they mention wetzel but this article is in the nature of an expose and they're looking at the culture of grassroots aau type basketball and who do they feature they feature (laughs) tj gasnola and he's just the poster boy for everything that's wrong in youth basketball and the first paragraph of this article reads a brazen foot soldier in a multi-billion dollar war between sneaker makers for the souls of America's youth. Thomas J. T. J. Gasnola has peddled basketball dreams to inner-city adolescents across New England despite a lengthy criminal history and prodigious legacy of financial delinquency. He's described as a free-wheeling recruiter and let's see, they say Gaznola, whose supporters include Adidas and numerous parents and players, has done it all in the company's name. As the sneaker giant's top New England recruiter in its quest to wrest supremacy of the market from arch rival Nike, Gaznola operates in a loosely regulated subculture in which Nike, Adidas, and Reebok, a Canton based Adidas sub- subsidiary, spend millions of dollars on quote unquote grassroots campaigns to curry favor with children as young as 12 in their hunt for the next Michael Jordan or LeBron James, superstars whose endorsements shape the marketplace. And the article goes on to quote from people who, some of whom think is uh, just doing the right thing by poor inner city youth read African-American youth. And then a holy host of observers who think he is the perfect example of everything that's wrong with college basketball and youth basketball and this pipeline that runs through the shoe companies from the earliest eligibility years in youth basketball, and that's really 10 to 12 years old, all the way through to the NBA. And it is just a dirty, nasty business, but it is ubiquitous. And while you have all these people talking about the corruption of youth basketball, all of these same people, if they're in the talent acquisition market, they have to run through the TJ Gasnolas. And in that 2000 book that Wetzel wrote, there was a guy named Myron Piggy who was the 2000 version of TJ Gasnola. And he was a Nike guy. These guys are everywhere and they have enormous influence and they are doing the bidding of the shoe companies all to the same goal. And that is to get talent from the grassroots market into the pipeline and steer that talent to universities that have these massive contracts with a given shoe company. So back to this Smith transaction. So as a result of the payment from Gaznola to the NC State assistant coach, at least in the view of the court and the criminal context under this victim university theory, and then also in the view of the NCAA under its interpretation of what constitutes pay for play. At the moment that this transaction occurs, that initial transaction from Gasnola to early, which Gaznola could testify to, and he did testify to, and he was a participant in that transaction, but Dennis Smith Jr. became ineligible under NCAA regulations and its construction of amateurism because that payment violated amateurism rules. And then this is another important fact. The NCAA requires players or their parents, if the players are under 18, to sign a certification before they enroll, saying that they have not violated any NCAA rules, specifically including amateurism rules and pay for play. And they list out some examples of types of pay that would render an athlete ineligible. And I don't know if his parents signed off on this or not, but whoever signed that certification certified to NC State that they had not taken any payment, that they were not in violation of any NCAA rules. And those two transactions, NC State awarding a scholarship to a player who turned out to be ineligible because of NCAA rules violations, and then that independent certification that there had been no rules violations were the predicate for the district court's framing of its victim university theory. And it's also important to note at this point that what I'm describing to you is how things played out on the criminal side. But in this pending NCAA investigation and the hearing and all the transactions that have occurred on the NCAA side, NC State denies, flatly denies, that there's any proof that this payment from Gasnola was intended to induce Smith to either come to NC State or remain committed to NC State, and that there's really no evidence and no paper trail after this initial payment that would prove up that connection. And so they deny all of those allegations, and they do it in large part because, as I'm going to explain in a little more detail in just here just a second, the nature of the charges is wire fraud charges and the conspiracy to commit wire fraud are so generalized and so vague and this burden of proof to meet that threshold for culpability under those statutes is so low that the government wasn't put to the kind of proof that would have really traced this money from the initial payment from Gasnola to wherever it ultimately landed and for whatever purpose. And that's a really important thing to to note in the these two different contexts that are really being conflated, the criminal context and then this regulatory context. So in this FBI investigation, again, we know nothing about the origin of that investigation, but in this investigation, which must have gone back to at least before these Smith transactions, the FBI had wiretapped phone calls and intercepted messages and evidence that showed that this transaction occurred. And that was the basis for the wire fraud charges. That was the main statute under which these defendants were charged. And the court, Judge Kaplan, said that this conduct was a possible violation of the wire fraud statute because they, quote, deceived the victim universities into giving athletic scholarships to players who in fact were ineligible to compete in NCAA basketball games prevented the victim universities from making their own fully informed decisions with respect to the distribution of scholarships, and exposed the victim universities to financial and other penalties for non-compliance with NCAA rules. And after a full trial, all of the defendants were convicted on the wire fraud charges. And I need to point out that wire fraud charges are some of the flimsiest charges that federal prosecutors can levy they are notoriously abused by federal prosecutors and really the applicability the breadth of these wire fraud statutes is limited only by the prosecution's imagination and because of the breadth of this statute it requires very little in the way of proof the penalties are draconian up to 10 years per act. And again, the law's act applicability is really only subject to the limitations of a prosecutor's imagination and conscience. When I w- was putting together my blog post, implausible deniability about this whole criminal prosecution fiasco, I quoted from a Law Review article that was written by a former federal prosecutor. It's from 1980, and uh, the guy's last name is Rakoff. The title of the article is Federal Mail Fraud Statute, and he says, to federal prosecutors of white-collar crime, the mail fraud statute is our Stradivarius, our Colt 45, our Louisville Slugger, our Cuisinart, and our one true love. We may flirt with Rico And call the conspiracy law, darling, but we always come home to the virtues of the wire fraud statute with its simplicity, adaptability, and comfortable familiarity. And one of the primary lines of defense that Gatto and his co-defendants used in this case was to essentially argue that the universities could not be victims because they were in on the scam. And in that regard, they retained Dan Rasher, who I mentioned earlier. And he put together an expert report that essentially said that the institutions, these victim universities, have purposefully but covertly built into their fundamental business model, a risk tolerance for the acquisition of elite men's basketball talent that might run afoul of NCAA rules. And Rasher put together a long three-pronged study, but his broad conclusion was that and this is a quote, the value to a Division I university of recruiting an elite men's basketball player was so substantial that even if the recruitment of that player involved a violation of an NCAA rule, the benefits from recruiting that player generally would outweigh any costs associated with the rules violation. And what Rasher was saying here is that this is really what happens in NCAA rules violation cases, both for the NCAA and the university, rather than what might hypothetically happen given the NCAA's possible enforcement jurisdiction. In, In essence, he was saying that universities are not victims and that these high value assets are so important to the overall business model that everybody professes the virtues of amateurism and the integrity of college sports to the outside world, but behind the scenes, they are operating in a culture of don't ask, don't tell. And that will be the most generous characterization of it. That they purposefully avert their eyes up and down the chain of command so that there is implausible deniability. I, I characterize it as implausible deniability. And In the Commission on College Basketball report, they say that explicitly. There are all kinds of comments I'll get into in just a second that fly in the face of this notion that the universities could ever be deemed victims in the recruiting process in the talent acquisition process because they are all competing for these same kids and these kids have scholarship offers from 2025 20, schools and schools never give up when a kid signs with a school that doesn't mean it's done and it's just a ruthless and volatile market that's just the nature of the market and everybody knows it so the prosecution was scared to death of this expert report. And they fought like hell to keep it out because it goes to the heart of the absurdity of the prosecution's theory, the victim, capital V, university, capital U theory. So they moved to exclude that report. And Judge Kaplan issues a detailed opinion on that. And this is really the closest you come to fully understanding the theory of the case and how Kaplan was thinking about it. So I'm going to walk through this a a little bit and just hit the high points. So in framing the theory of the case, the court went into this explanation that, again, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the real world of college athletics because it was premised on accepting the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and the rules that prevent violations of the principles of amateurism as presumptively valid and the standard by which the defendant's conduct was going to be judged. And in this case, in this way, this court is basically criminalizing the violation of NCAA rules. And that is the fundamental flaw with this theory, one that I think had some uh, appellate judges wondering really what the heck was going on here, at least one appellate judge. But in, in framing the case, Kaplan went to extraordinary measures to make sure that the NCAA was not on trial and was in many ways invisible to the jurors. So while acknowledging that, quote, at the root of this situation is the NCAA's principle of amateurism, the court nevertheless concluded that, quote, the NCAA amateurism and recruitment rules are not on trial here. The court then stated that, quote, the rules, whether wise or fair, simply were contextual facts, part of the milieu in which the fraud allegedly was committed. But this is really important to understand, the NCAA rules were far more than context. It is not a criminal act for an agent, a booster, a shoe company, a university or a college coach to pay a high school player or his parents to attend a particular school. It's not a crime that in and of itself that payment would violate NCAA amateurism rules, but the mere fact of the payment isn't a crime. And that's why the way that the court framed this case is really a problem. So Judge Kaplan wanted to make very clear that the NCAA was not going to be on trial here, and NCAA rules were not going to be on trial here. And the wisdom of amateurism is not going to be on trial. And he enforced that line with a zeal that when you read some of the quotes, some of the ways that Kaplan came down on the defense when they came within field goal range of suggesting that this is really an NCAA rules issue and a fairness issue and not a criminal issue. He's brought the hammer down hard. And from the very beginning of the case, even in jury selection, he was teasing out potential biases for any juror who might be sympathetic to the argument that this really isn't criminal behavior. This is just a a really offensive NCAA rule that walks all over the rights of the athletes who fund the NCAA. And Kaplan wasn't going to let that happen. And at every turn during the conduct of the trial, if the defense made some just even uh, sideswipe reference to to the NCAA or unfairness of NCAA rules, Kaplan went nuts. He just went nuts. Maybe that's just his style, but boy, he seemed to be pretty invested in making sure that the NCAA's true business model wasn't going to see the light of day in that courtroom. And that's one of the primary bases for the defendant's appeal to the United States Supreme Court. And I'll read a little bit from their introduction to give you a sense of uh, where they're headed when I get to it here in a little bit. I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but Kaplan ultimately excluded Rasher's report. And in justifying that exclusion and, and talking about the merits of Rasher's basic principle, and that is that this is just a big game and the universities are in on it and they have built in implausible deniability, but they, this is just a, a cost of doing business. The fact that they may have to answer to the NCAA, uh, they get caught, you know, but he said, the judge said in response to that theory, quote, it was enough for the government to prove that defendants intentionally subjected the victim universities to an unbargained for risk of economic loss evidence of either the frequency or probable impact of NCAA sanctions for rules violations would have been irrelevant because any unbargained for risk of NCAA sanctions would have been enough to support a conviction. And it's the beginning of this opinion by Judge Kaplan. He tries to throw a bone to people who are saying this is a crazy theory. This is a corrupt business model. He's talking about the debate about... The wisdom of paying athletes and the soundness of NCAA regulations, which he then dismisses. But he drops a footnote and he quotes the Commission on College Basketball. And that, again, the Commission on College Basketball was formed in direct response to these charges that were announced in September of 2017. And it is looking at the same core of facts and allegations to put together regulations to do something immediately, immediately. But he quotes, just Kaplan quotes the report and to acknowledge that the NCAA amateurism model is not free from controversy and that the environment surrounding college basketball is a toxic mix of perverse incentives to cheat. And those are quotes from the Commission on College Basketball report. But one of the things that I found interesting about this opinion and his theory is that he relies on NCAA regulations that bring the hammer down on violations of principles of amateurism, but then ignores NCAA legislation and its constitutional principles of institutional control, which are directly at odds with the institutions being portrayed as victims. Because under the NCAA's principle of institutional control, the institutions themselves are responsible for keeping the streets clean. And the actions of their subordinates are imputed to the institution. The NCAA regulates and punishes institutions who are the only members of the NCAA. Even though they can declare a coach or a player ineligible if their investigation determines that there was a violation of rules by those individuals, they have to be enforced through the university, and the university is the vehicle through which all enforcement and infractions penalties run, and the university has to accept responsibility for that. So it is an institutional responsibility that is consistent with the principle of Institutional Control and Responsibility, and that is from NCAA Constitution Article 2, Section 2.1, and it says, it is the responsibility of each member institution to control its intercollegiate athletics program in compliance with the rules and regulations of the association. The institution's president or chancellor is responsible for the administration of all aspects of the athletics program, including responsibility for the actions of its staff members and for the actions of any other individual or organization engaged in activities promoting the athletics interest of the institution there's no exception here for willful ignorance or gullibility or implausible deniability <laughs> you know this institutional control and responsibility principle reflects a strict liability philosophy on responsibility and compliance So under this principle, in cases where a staff member or somebody who should be under the control of the institution participates in a breach of NCAA rules, it is not a defense for the university to come in and say, well, the president didn't know, the board of regents didn't know, the board of trustees didn't know. That is not a defense. You cannot say, oh, no, we're the victims here. That coach is responsible. That player is responsible The shoe company is responsible. No, the actions of all of those actors are imputed to the university and the university cannot claim victim status. And the reason for that is that under the NCAA's formulation of responsibility, in those cases, where a person acting under the university supervision or control is a perpetrator in the breach of NCAA rules, the real victims are the other NCAA member institutions who have not cheated or have or who haven't been caught yet cheating. But the whole principle of institutional control is based on the acceptance of responsibility without trying to point the finger within the institution. And under that theory, if there's something that happens that violates NCAA rules under the institution's control and responsibility, they can't be a victim. They simply can't be. And the true victims are the people, other schools who aren't cheating. And so, again, it begs the question of why in the world Kaplan would look at NCAA rules to support his bizarre victim university theory? They limit that review of NCAA regulations only to those that preserved and protected its conceptualization of amateurism, but not look at the central issue in this case, and that is who is ultimately responsible here? Who is the victim? And under NCAA regulations and the theory of liability, strict liability, the university in which the corruption occurs cannot be the victim. They simply cannot be. And Condoleezza Rice just got to the heart of that, both in comments that I think were contained in the report that reflect her thinking, but also in comments that she made independent of the report. And so. Let me go through a few of those comments. And again, you wonder why Judge Kaplan didn't take a look at these comments. But the report says, virtually all stakeholders and others providing information to the commission at some point uttered the discouraging phrase, everyone knows what's been going on. Everyone knows what's been going on. Of course they do. And they also say, the report says, many stakeholders noted that when the U.S. Attorney's Office announced the charges that prompted the NCAA to establish this commission, no one in the relevant community expressed surprise and many stated that everyone knows that these types of payments occur, where an entire community Is aware of substantial rule breaking and the governance body fails to act, the result is cynicism and contempt. The report also says the NCAA is certainly not blameless for its failure to address the corruption in college basketball that led to the recent prosecutions, but the primary failures belong to the individuals at colleges and universities who allowed their programs to be corrupted, averting their eyes to keep the money flowing. And Dr. Rice said, at the time of the release of the report outside of the contents of the report itself, that the rewards for violating NCAA rules far outweigh the risks. That's exactly what Dan Rasher was saying in his expert report. And it's also important to note in that regard that one of the recommendations that the commission made goes to the very heart of this victim university theory. So the report says, we are also recommending several steps to address the actual root cause of the problem. Governance and leadership lapses among many who are charged with protecting the best interest of collegiate athletes. These are the people who are most responsible for giving them a chance to achieve a college education and a college degree and have instead given in to the incentive to win at all costs. In that regard, Dr. Rice noted that the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations included, quote, significant expansion of individual accountability for rules violations for coaches, athletics directors, and college presidents, college presidents. And the specific method through which th- they were going to achieve that goal goes really to undermine the heart of this victim university theory. The commission said, quote, the commission recommends that the NCAA enact a rule requiring college and university presidents, coaches, and athletics directors to certify annually that they have conducted due diligence and that their athletic programs comply with NCAA rules. Guess what? <laughs> that. that due diligence requirement has not been adopted. And it's not going to be because the whole purpose of this built-in implausible deniability is to be able to say, well, you know, how could we possibly have known? How could we possibly have known? And if there's not a due diligence requirement, that's an adequate defense. And I guess another theme that runs through that denial, that willful ignorance, I would say, on the part of Judge Kaplan Is that he and others like him in the judiciary, and I talked a little bit about this in my episode on judicial fealty to amateurism, they don't really understand what this business is about. And I think it's difficult for them to wrap their heads around the fact that the NCAA could be as dirty as it is and that the business model could be as corrupt by NCAA standards, at least as it is. And so when you read these opinions, you feel the built-in deference to the institutional values, to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and skepticism of the more cynical view. And they view it as a cynical view of college sports because they have, to a certain extent, bought into the fairy tale that the NCAA has been spinning for decades. And that is that they are on the right side of amateur justice and they are out doing the good work out in the trenches to protect the integrity of college sports and to accept the defendant's theory here. And that is that this is all just a big kabuki theater fraud and everybody's in on the scam. They just want plausible deniability. To these federal judges, that requires a level of cynicism that They simply find difficult to buy into. And I think it's uh, interesting because the dissenting judge in this Second Circuit opinion, I think, flirts with that. And I believe that the way he characterizes his impression of the business model, he has reluctantly come to the view that that cynicism is well-placed. And that's one of the reasons that he disagreed with the majority opinion on the exclusion of certain evidence. And that was really where he landed in disagreeing with the majority. It's very technical. I'm not going to get into that, but I'm going to read a a little bit from that opinion and then a little bit from the... The defendant's petition in the U.S. Supreme Court. But before I, I get to that and to really how difficult it is to dispel some of these massive NCAA-friendly narratives, even in a process that should give you the opportunity to do that. You know, that happened in the Austin case on the civil side in the, in the antitrust suits because amateurism had to be on trial because the NCAA put it on trial because it was their pro-competitive justification for their compensation limit. So it had to be the subject of, of scrutiny. In this case, amateurism was was the root of the case. But this judge, this court, this process aggressively prohibited the defendants from explaining to the jury what amateurism is and more importantly, what it's not and to put the NCAA on trial because the NCAA absolutely should be put on trial. If the court's gonna adopt their thinking, their principles, their narratives, their rules as the standard for conduct in a criminal case, these defendants had an absolute right, in my judgment, to present evidence that undermined the assumptions of the narratives that that case was built upon. And they were denied that opportunity. And that really, I think, is the essence of the appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. The appeal to the Second Circuit was based on all these really technical questions about the admissibility of evidence, and the reliability of evidence and jury instructions and all these very technical things. But now that that case is in the U.S. Supreme Court, the focus has changed to some more fundamental questions about whether the universities really could be victims and whether uh, the defendant's conduct met the fundamental elements of the wire fraud statute. So I want to read just a little excerpt from the dissenting judge's opinion in the Second Circuit opinion. And he says... Here, the defendant's argument was that the things the government said they stole from the universities, the scholarship money provided to the athletes and the university's ability to comply with NCAA rules and avoid penalties, were things that they reasonably believed the universities were, in fact, happy enough to give up in the pursuit of greater financial benefit. The defendants claimed to believe that by not openly acknowledging the rules violations they committed, They were deceiving no one because the universities, in fact, knew that such violations happened regularly. The universities did not know of the specific payments made by these particular defendants not because the defendants pulled the wool over the victim's eyes, but because the alleged victims desired not to know too much. In order to preserve a hypocritical pretense of compliance while pursuing the financial and reputational benefits of maintaining successful athletics programs without paying the athletes whose skill and hard work generate the profits that go to the adult coaches and schools. The dissenting judge goes on to say, we should be particularly careful not to sweep too broadly in declaring out of bounds evidence that does indeed support the defendant's claims about what they believed. The cynicism of their claimed beliefs does not do them much credit, but on this record, one is left with a queasy feeling that the deeper cynicism may be in the system within which they operate. That is a perfect description of the business model in big time college sports and it is kabuki theater that has been part of the big time college sports business model from its earliest iterations and in his 1988 book sports and freedom sports historian. Ronald Smith, who I spoke about in the early episodes, and that's a great book. I'll link to that as well. But that's been really influential because he really gets at the values level to how universities have managed what he calls the professional amateur dilemma, and that is that they profess amateurism to the outside world because they simply can't afford from a reputational standpoint or a branding standpoint or a public relations standpoint to acknowledge the truth of the business model and their complicity in it. They instead insist behind the scenes and with plausible deniability that big-time college sports have the most professional elements available in the marketplace so that they can be successful and win. And that is the heart of the hypocrisy in big-time college sports. And this judge just really got to the crux of that. And then I'm just, let me just pull out the defendant's petition to the United States Supreme Court. Remember, this was just filed. I think it was on August 2nd. I think it, the court, the case was docketed on August 5th. So we're just talking three weeks ago. In its introduction, the defendants say this. Time and time again, including in last term's unanimous opinion in United States v. Kelly, this court has cautioned federal prosecutors that the federal wire fraud statute is to be narrowly construed and not employed as a general policing mechanism to enforce a prosecutor's view of integrity. If the instant case is any indication, the court's repeated warnings appear to be falling on deaf ears. Here, prosecutors in the Southern District of New York went so far as to decide without any input from Congress that it shall now be a federal crime punishable up to 20 years in prison to violate the rules of a private voluntary association, the National Collegiate Athletic Association. The defendants go on to say, the payments arranged by Gatto were not themselves illegal. It is not against the law to offer a financial incentive to a family to persuade them to send their son or daughter to a particular college. They were, quote-unquote, unlawful only under the, quote-unquote, bylaws of the NCAA and ordinarily, the punishment for such NCAA rule-breaking was, at least until federal prosecutors decided to intervene, paltry, with an athlete required to sit out a few games and potentially a fine waged against the team. Why federal prosecutors suddenly determined, decades after the NCAA was established, that the enforcement of NCAA rules was a matter for the United States Department of Justice and that NCAA rule-breaking constituted conduct meriting prison time, is a question that has remained un. Unanswered throughout this proceeding. And in that regard, on why this case ever saw the light of day, I'll go back to the Second Circuit opinion, the dissenting opinion. And the judge says in a discussion about this exploitation argument and the defendant's desire to try to put the ncaa on trial the court says the district court was ultimately right to try to prevent the defendants from putting the entire ncaa system on trial for its exploitation of athletes under circumstances that make violations of the sort in which these defendants engaged all but inevitable or even to appear morally justified in providing some recompense to those whose labor generates the money that enriches others And then the judge says this, whatever value such a trial might have in the court of public opinion, and however such a defense might affect the wise judgment of prosecutors as to what cases are worth the expenditure of significant law enforcement resources, the legal issues in a case like this are far narrower. What's the judge saying there that why the hell did you bring this case? Why are we spending federal money on this? When everybody knows what's going on, everybody knows that this is a big fraud, NCAA amateurism fraud, and these people are simply engaging in conduct that occurs routinely. And I guess I want to point this out as well. That is that anybody who knows the business of big-time college sports and this pipeline from grassroots youth basketball up to high school, then to college, and then into the NBA knows that you could walk into any gym at a high-profile AAU tournament where there is a you know, top 50 type player playing and have somebody who knows the, the people swirling around that athlete point out a number of people who could have been prosecuted the same way that these defendants were. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's so ubiquitous. It's so well understood. It's so much a part of the business of big time college basketball that you have to ask yourself, why now and why these defendants? And those are really important questions. And when you go back to this 2006 Boston Globe article and you look at how brazen, and they use the word brazen from the outset to talk about the climate and culture of the involvement of the shoe companies, you see how easy it would be for the NCAA to come in at any point and pull one of these guys out of that gym or a handful of them out of that gym and run them through the process. And again, this could have happened at any point really over the last 30 years, maybe even 40. This goes back quite a while, this influence of the shoe companies and the dirty nature of the grassroots basketball recruiting environment. And the exploitation that's inherent in that. Again, where was the NCAA in 1990 or 2000 or 2005 or 2010? Where were they? So that just begs the question of why in 2015 and why these defendants? And I guess that also invokes another issue here that's an important one and that is that the NCAA doesn't have direct regulatory control over the shoe company representatives any more than they do over athlete agents and so these people who are really external to the process and again the NCAA's relationship is with the member institutions and all of their regulatory authority and power runs through the hammer that they can swing at an institution, and the institution has to fall in line with the NCAA's infractions and enforcement findings, or else it's, uh, you know, putting its membership at risk. But The NCAA doesn't have direct control over these shoe company representatives, but because of the relationship between the member institutions and these shoe companies and under broader principles of NCAA institutional control and rules compliance that place all of these responsibilities at the institutional level. The NCAA believes that it does have jurisdiction. So the NCAA could have come in at any point since the inception of these big contracts between the shoe companies and the universities and the purpose that they serve in the talent acquisition market and brought the hammer down. And they didn't. And I'm going to get to those when I go down this other track and that may be another podcast. But the judge goes on to say towards the very end of his opinion in the final paragraph, he closes it out by saying, it is not for judges to decide whether it makes sense to use federal enforcement revenues to pursue the relatively low level agents of corruption in the system. And that's another important point. They only went after the most vulnerable people in this whole system. Why did they stop? Why did the investigation stop? at the assistant coach level and the shoe company level. Why not go to the head coaches? Head coaches were clearly implicated here. Why not further investigate and see if it went even further up the chain of command? And one of the problems with that inquiry, which would be a logical inquiry under the prosecution's theory of the case is that the farther you go up the chain of command, the less defensible your victim university theory is. Because at what level of university responsibility does the university cease to become the victim and start to become the perpetrator? And in this criminal case, with respect to NC State, the prosecution didn't call Orlando early. The prosecution didn't call Mark Gottfried. They didn't call the NC State athletics director or the university president, none of those people were called as witnesses. And if you look at how the government approached this case and how Judge Kaplan theorized the case, you would think that early and perhaps even Gottfried would have been defendants. And the same would have been true, I think, in the Louisville and Kansas fact patterns. Why did it stop with these Adidas guys and the lowest level and most vulnerable assistant coaches? And The trail just stops with Gasnola, with this really unreliable guy with just a terrible history in this industry. And that's a good segue into this transition from the criminal case to the regulatory case because NC State was a victim in the criminal case. And they came in and they offered a victim impact statement. So, you know, at the conclusion of the trial, NC State came in and said, Gatto owes us uh, $286,000 in attorney's fees. And he also needs to reimburse us for the cost of uh, Smith Jr.'s scholarship that we wouldn't have offered or, or shouldn't have offered because he was ineligible. And interestingly, it appears that that victim impact statement and request was directed to Gatto individually, not to Adidas. Why didn't NC State go after Adidas? (laughs) Well, let me tell you why. Because NC State has a massive contract with Adidas, and Adidas sends them tens of millions of dollars to wear Adidas apparel and to promote Adidas. And the kids are required to wear Adidas sportswear and shoes under the contract with Adidas. Even though they can't be a party to that contract and make any money for themselves off of it, because that would be a violation of NCAA rules. But these shoe companies are so deeply insinuated into big time college sports that it's really embarrassing. But in 2016, during this investigation, while Adidas is best and brightest, this Gatto guy and Gasnala are doing these off the books deals with NC State assistant coaches. I guess I, just, I should also point out at this point, all this cloak and dagger stuff had absolutely nothing to do with any fear that they were evading the FBI or the Justice Department or federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. They were uh, trying to Avoid detection by the NCAA and NCAA (laughs) informants and also from all the other schools that wanted Dennis Smith Jr. wanted to know what NC State was paying so they could sweeten the pot. You know, it's just ridiculous. But again, right as all this crazy stuff is going on behind the scenes, NC State is negotiating a contract extension with Adidas. And when they signed it, it got all this press and they have all these sports outlets that focus on sports marketing. And this is a perfect story for them. They splash it on a headline, NC State extends contract with Adidas. And that contract is worth $40 million. And I think it was like a five or six year extension. And the annual value was north of $6 million a year. And that's a great thing for NC State. NC State has a great relationship with Adidas and so do so many other schools. And NC State's not going to turn around and point the finger at Adidas any more than UCLA is going to point the finger at Under Armour or Texas is going to point the finger at Nike. They're all in bed together. And these shoe companies are, are simply an integral part of the institutional component of the business model of big time college sports. And that's really what the Rasher report went to, what the fundamental defense and and response to this victim university theory went to. And that is none of this makes sense. It just doesn't make sense. And it just reeks of unfairness and overreach. There are components of this business model that are so indefensible that trying to make a criminal case out against the low-level participants in this marketplace simply doesn't pass the blush test. And so, as I said earlier, this will be a nice segue into the compare and contrast between the criminal side and the regulatory side, because now we're into the regulatory side and all of the sudden NC State is the perpetrator, not just the NC State assistant coach Orlando Early or even the N- former NC State head coach Mark Gottfried, not just Dennis Smith's father, not just these two Adidas idiots, but the institution because under NCAA regulation and its enforcement process for violations of amateurism based compensation limits, the institutions are responsible. The buck stops with them. And enforcement has to run through them. So NC State's challenge here, and I think they handled this pretty well when you look at how they frame the issues, is to reconcile these two faces that they have to wear in this absurd process. One as the victim, and then now as the perpetrator. So with that, I'll close this thing out. I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of The Big amateurism monologues. Take care.